Well, happy Thanksgiving week, y'all. I hope, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. We, we had turkey. Probably you, you had turkey. You know, we had standard stuff alongside that turkey to eat. Leo was there. I was there. There's at least two kids that were there. There was football on the TV. You know, I fell asleep. I woke up. There was some cartoon playing. Those things happen. How, how was your Thanksgiving? All right, here we go. Multiple choice. Now tell me what happened. First question. What food was at the Pavel Thanksgiving? Turkey? Smoked turkey? Turkey, ham, and fixins? Turducken and fixings. You're saying A, we got C. What was that? Oh no, Adam just preached the sermon. <laughs> the answer is C, but you have no way of knowing that right now, right? All right, next question. Though y'all get the habit of this now. Who was at the Pavel Thanksgiving? All the Pavels, Pavels and the Pavel grandparents, Josh, Leah, Karis, and friends, just Ava. <laughs> it is not D. It, it, was, it was C. We're, we're there. My, my parents came later. And then I got the final one here as well. I think it's the final one. What's the next question? What did Josh fall asleep watching on television? The Macy Thanksgiving Day Parade, Detroit Lions Green Bay Packers game, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, the Egg Bowl, or all of the above? It probably is actually E, all of the above. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for playing. Um, let me tell you about the, the series that we're in right now. Um, I really believe, and, and, and this, this again, as I, I tend to do, this will make more sense as, as we go on. Um, but what we're doing in this series, what we're really getting at, right, is that love can, will, and does change the world. And, and I don't know, like, it, we, we've watered this down so much to, like, Beatles lyrics that we forget what it really means to love. A love that is not like the world's love, but a love that actually conquers and changes the world. This is a, a, a quote I came across, and I want you to hear this one. The love for equals is a human thing. Brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. When you see that kind of love, the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is the love for the enemy. Love does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. Am I dying? Let's try that one. This is God's love conquers the world. And that's a quote from Frederick Buchner in the, the Magnificent Defeat. 
you know, and, and this idea of kind of like conquering the world, this idea of like kind of what changes the world. And this, this kind of idea, it's brought to my mind this idea of, of legacy. You know, like where do we go from here? When I'm gone from this earth, you know, what is left behind? What's in the wake of Josh Pavel's life? Not that I'm getting that old yet. But it has to stem from here and now. The legacy is not something that we're going to just find one day or it's going to be the culmination of these things. It's the evidence of a well-lived life. Uh, my pastor, when I was growing up, was a, a wonderful man. And, and one of the things that, that happened was um, after he passed, we, we were down there. There's probably 500,000 people at, at his funeral. And his wife took the microphone, came up and spoke. And the first word she said just hit my heart. And she said, I was well-loved. I mean, what a legacy for somebody to know I was well-loved. I want my wife, I want my kids to know that they are well-loved. Like, that, may that be my legacy that, that, that we are. I mean, when Jesus left, that was his legacy, is that we are well-loved with this love that conquers the world. We can't love like the world if we expect it to change the world. Those things that we have here, right? If we want to change the world, if we want to see this world get conquered by something greater than this world, we can't love like the world. That's why this series, I think, is actually so important for us, that we don't try to just mimic what is out there in society. That we don't take the best of what mankind has to offer and say, we'll put a Christian stamp on that and say, there we go. We love differently. We have to. Because that's what's going to change the world. That's what's going to make this a better place than what we found it. A better place for our kids. A better place, dare I say, for our enemies. Because that's the world I want to leave behind. A world improved because the church was present. A church that, that has shifted the tides of, of culture and society and history and shaped it into the image and likeness of Jesus. Over 2,000 years of practicing since Jesus walked our streets. And what have we gotten? I think we've managed to say love the sinner and hate the sin. The results of that have not been great. <laughs> With that statement, we've gotten a lot of thinly veiled judgment. We've gotten exclusion. But a well-meaning attempt trying to work this out. Because it's really hard to do, right? This idea of loving our enemy, this idea of changing, a, a love that conquers, and we come up with that pithy saying, and we kind of get what we're trying to say, right? And I think those of us in the room were like, I know it's well-intentioned, but I can tell you from people outside the church, sometimes those words sting. They can't distinguish between things that they've done and who they are and all those sorts of things. That, that, that just feels like thinly veiled judgment, and it has been hard so let's talk about loving those who harm us. The Bible says to turn the other cheek. Really? That's so hard to actually do. There was a man who came to Christ in a, in a, in a church where I was the pastor, and um, he went to prison, not because of me, but uh, he, he called me from his prison cell, and actually this was part of his, his life, was because he had done things wrong. And uh, he came to Christ, and he's like, what do I do? And he turned himself in. Um, for things that he'd done wrong. And he went to prison. He, it wasn't his first time. And he said, uh, you know, every time I've been to prison before, the first thing I do is get in a fight and you prove yourself. And I, th I, said, I thought that was only in the movies. Um, but he said that's what he did and he didn't know what to do. And here I am, a young pastor. I was a pastor too young. I was a young pastor and there's this hardened criminal, I'll say, who came to me asking for advice on what to do in prison. 
And I, the Lord just brought me to turn the other cheek. And I, with fear and trepidation, literally shaking in my voice, I said, you got to turn the other cheek. If somebody hits you, you turn the other cheek. And he said, really? <laughs> and I was like legitimately afraid I'm sending this man to a death sentence. You know, like, this, is this the advice I give someone in prison? And I just realized if it doesn't hold up there, does it ever hold up? He did. He got a new nickname in prison. He was called Mother Hen, uh, truly. And people would come to his cell for, for Bible studies. And, and it was a place of redemption, of restoration, of, of holiness. And the thing is, I want you to understand this, though, too. With that understanding, is that love or is that pacifism? Where do we confuse these things? Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Right? You can hear this, turn the other cheek, and we're thinking, well, what is that changing? Is that love or is that pacifism? Loving like Jesus has to confront sin, violence, and brokenness. You see why this gets really hard? Why this is something that we have to work out? Why something like a, just reducing it to a statement doesn't really get us across the finish line. It gets us to a starting point. Like now we can talk. Now we can have a conversation. The world says forgive and forget, right? Or sometimes we say self-care, care for yourself. We talk about forgiving ourselves. Loving like Jesus like this doesn't require a love that's less than kindness, but that is more. And we have to understand what that is. This is a question on how we love people who we disagree with, on how we love people who harm us. Here's another um, quote. This one's from Tim Keller from a book called Forgive. To forgive then is to first name the trespass truthfully as wrong and punishable rather than merely excusing it. Second, it is to identify with the perpetrator as a fellow sinner rather than thinking how different you, uh, he or she is. It is to will their good. Third, it's to release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt oneself rather than seeking revenge and paying them back. And finally, it's to aim for reconciliation rather than breaking off the relationship forever. If you hit any one of these four actions, you are not engaging in real forgiveness. Now, that is a high bar. That is a high bar. But you know it passes the smell test, right? It smells like Jesus. It has that, that ring of righteousness and something that changes the world, something that's not the best that we can do, but something that pulls from the divine pocket of who we were created to be. And that, I think, is a beautiful and wonderful thing here. here here's a final quote for us. Loving like Jesus means also that we love without compromising holiness. Jesus loved and dined with sinners and yet was never blemished, never winked at or condoned anything sinful, but yet loved. This is the argument within me, and I believe in more than just me. How do we do this? It seems we were always forced to take a side. This is from Brant Cannon from a text message to Josh Pavel one Sunday. <laughs> well said, Brant. Thank you. The thing is here, we, we often have a formula, and it, and it looks something like this. If you don't think of yourself as like a, a math person, you can think of this like a script or a movie plot, right? Person is bad. <laughs> person repents. God forgives. Life is good. 
right? You've got a nice, simple formula, things paying out this way, and like, come on, it's beautiful. It's, it, it, it's wonderful. It's, a, it's like a gift with a nice bow around it where you can see at the end of it, well done. Everything is just as it should be. So we think that we got to get people to that first stage. You know, so how do we get them at that first stage? Uh, so we want to, to begin telling them, well, you're bad. Well, you've sinned. All of sin, we've all fallen short, you know, so let, let's start at that point. And we begin painting this picture to people. We give them the rules and tell them how they failed. And this is our starting point. We don't start with the fact that you are worthy of love. We don't start with the fact that, that he first loved us, and that's how we know what love is, like we've been talking about these past few weeks. So we, we got to remember where we're actually st- coming from, right? The blessing isn't because of the rules. The rules teach us how to live because we belong. And this is from about two weeks ago, right? First we are redeemed and then we're given the rules and we've reversed this often. So we don't want to get too ahead from this, but this is the formula normally that people hold in their heads on how the story is supposed to go. But now with this formula, let me ask you the question, what if they don't repent? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Well, where does love often come into this? Love either comes in with God forgiving or all the blessings. So then what? Then there's no love. Right? I got another one of this with a little heart on it. There we go. (laughs) That's where the love normally comes in with this formula, right? And if this is where there's love and if we're not getting to that, that person repenting stage, where are they experiencing the love that first loved us? Where's God so loved the world? There seems to be a bit of a problem with this formula, right? That is, generally speaking, a pretty well-packaged understanding of how we come to the gospel. There's a, a shortcoming with this formula. So if we don't want to deny them love, and let me, by the way, give you a little bit of grace. I think sometimes we withhold love because we're worried about resource depletion. That sounds strange, but let me, let me say it this way. Emotional engagement costs you something. Mental engagement costs you something. Time and energy, all these things that we pour into these relationships, hoping for this outcome, and we're saying like, well, if it's not going to pan out, <laughs> I, just can't, I just can't invest. Have you ever had that thought? Like, it's just not going to be worth it, right? They're just not going to be worth it because we're not going to be getting them over this finish line. Do you see the problem? Do you see? Because love is not in the beginning of this thing. And because we have fear of legitimate fear of not being able to do all these things well, we pull back. We just offer them the rules to see if it sticks. We, we offer them judgment if it doesn't. And then we cut it off and we're like, well, that didn't work out. So I am done. And I think that this is a fair representation on how a lot of this goes, whether we can expressly say it or not. I don't want to say that we pull from an infinite store of energy and love and passion for the lost because, quite frankly, I haven't found out how to do that yet. All right? If, if you have, I will hand you the microphone and you can preach that sermon. But I just, I haven't found that myself. That if I can just tap into this divine source of love, then I'm just going to be like, like, what is it, Neo in the Matrix, this love for all, you know, whatever it is. It just doesn't exist in the way that I have found I don't think that loving like Jesus means we're a proxy of infinite personal love. This isn't a main point for today, but I want to give you a real chance to settle on whether this is what the Lord's saying to you. If this has been a a source of of hurt or frustration or disappointment for you, I I actually want to, to just give you a really quick blurb on what I think you can do about this. 
If we expect a romantic or supernatural passionate love and that has led to you to a lot of inaction by some wonderful intentioned disciples, if this is you, I want to give you these ideas. Live intentionally. Live intentionally. Be present. Create margins with maybe one or two people. I want to say that again because I actually really think that this matters for us, right? Live intentionally. What does that even mean? That means that you're not just letting life happen to you. That you're, you're not just letting things, circumstances decide what I'm going to do today. You live intentionally. You make a choice to love. You plan on creating a circumstance for people to feel loved. Live intentionally. Be present. Not on the phone. Not avoiding eye contact. You are present in the moment. You're doing something where you're engaged with them. And you create margins. You can't, you can't expect this to be at the end of the day with whatever's there. You have to carve out time to do this. And scoping it, one or two people. One or two people. Not the world. <laughs> not 20 people, not 30 people, not 50 people, not all the people that you want to do eventually. If this is describing you, start here. Love well with these one or two people that, that the Lord will bring to mind. It could be your wife, it could be your kids, it could be a friend, it could be a coworker. Live these things well for that. But again, that's a freebie, that's not in our sermon today. So, back to our formula. We already kind of shot this one down, so let, let me give you another formula. Let's try this one. God loves them. All right, now we're starting with love. And some of us think, okay, the first one didn't really work. I see where we can get there. Let's try a new formula. God loves them. We share the truth with them. They repent. And again, God forgives, and so we've got blessing. But here's the thing. We're at that same point. And let me challenge you with this. What if, and again, I got a slide for this, they don't repent? Now what do we do? Do we just love in this infinite little circle short of the coming of the kingdom of God? Is it, does this become human at this point? Is this something that, that is not progressing in the kingdom of God? Is it something that we're not called to do? And maybe you felt this frustration, right? That I feel more worldly in this relationship than I feel godly. It's a great friend, but they're not progressing towards the kingdom of God. I, I feel like I'm, I, I should be engaged with them, but am I actually doing any good? They haven't actually progressed. Should I continue to love them? Do I cut them off from my life? What do we do? Have you ever felt this way? I think this is another formula that we have offered to ourselves as a way of trying to understand how do we love in this world like Jesus? So these two formulas, I do feel, are ways that we've tried to do this. And maybe the formula gets minor tweaks, right? They repent, but they end up believing some of the wrong stuff. Have you ever seen that happen? Like, oh no, you, you don't really believe that. Like, like I tried so hard and here's the truth and, and now you're, you're, you're going to the wrong church. You're, you're, you're believing the, the wrong things or, or whatever it might be. It's not going quite where you thought. There's a book um, in high school. I don't know if I should admit this too publicly, but my friends and I, we discovered that the band Corn with a K. Anybody? A few, okay. Uh, loved it. Uh, hard music, and uh, not, not necessarily God-honoring music, um, but I was so blessed to realize uh, about a decade after high school, Brian Welch, who was the, the founder and guitar player for Korn, he repented from his addictions and found life in Christ. 
And it's an amazing story. He's got a book called Save Me From Myself. He's actually got two follow-up books as well. Fantastic story about how Christ showed up. And you read this book about his redemption, his arc, this whole story. He came back to the band. All sorts of things happened. And then there's an epilogue in the first book. And in the epilogue, he's like, and then the church showed up and told me I was wrong. <laughs> and I, re I remember the story. I'm just so excited and so happy to see this, this, I mean, sinner saved by grace and having a redeemed life. And then he walks into church and it's like, y'all are a mess. <laughs> and it was such a sad thing to see, like, here's this passionate new believer being told you're believing the wrong things. You, that guy who, who led you to Christ, well, he doesn't really know the whole truth. He only had a part of the truth. And they've got these debates about this. And you see him spun around of like, I, I, I don't even know what to do now. And like, now I'm in the church. Gee, I know that the, the, the Father loves me. I know that the Son made a path back for me. I know the Holy Spirit's leading me. I don't know what to do with it because I'm being told this and that and the other thing. And they're turned around. Back to the formulas. Maybe they repent from some stuff, but not all this stuff. You know, like, like maybe, maybe they're an, an addict who is still addicted. Maybe there's still greed. Maybe there's still lust. So again, it's not as, as cut and dry as like, you know, the formula is panning out the way we thought that the story should go. You don't know, you don't believe what I do. What's essential? What is non-essential? All these things. Here's the big idea for us this morning. We are not the authors of these redemption stories. When we fill in these gaps, when we don't know, when we don't know their full story, when we use our formulas, when we try to write the script for them, when we try to control things and we realize we can't control them, when we think we know the plan, we do things poorly. We mess this up because we are not the ones who can make somebody repent. Because we are not the ones who can forgive them for what they have done wrong for, for God. And it becomes pearls before swine. What do we do? Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. First point this morning. Can we recognize love in the law and the prophets? Can we recognize love in the law and the prophets? And the prophets. I am talking about dietary law. I'm talking about the Sabbath law. I'm talking about ceremonial law. I'm talking about prophets who have prophesied destruction and hope and restoration. Can we see love in all of these things? When Jonah is called to go to Nineveh, <laughs> Nineveh, <laughs> and he says, I don't want to go there. I don't like them. Can we see love in the prophets and in the law? When I read Leviticus, do I hear the heartbeat of God? Do I understand his heart in all those things? This is a matter of comprehending and seeing. It's joining perspective with humility and with the knowledge of God. This is really hard to do. 
Like th- this, this passage that I read about the two commandments, we skip over it as if it were so cut and dry and simple. And I know we do, right? And, oh, the, the first command, the second command, there we go. And then and we move on. No, no, do we realize that this is the lens? Jesus is telling us we can read the law and the prophets because of Christ's love, because of the Father's love, because of the Creator's love for us. That is the source. That's the foundation. Everything hangs off of that. But we come to it with a different approach or an understanding about telling us in and out, about trying to define you know, what good looks like, about trying to do all of these things when he's saying, no, you've got to start with love. You've got to start there or none of this makes any sense. In every case where we can't do this, all right? In every case where we read about slavery or women or children or murders or rapes or whatever these things are and we struggle with that, in every place where that happens, may we be silent and let him be God. This is actually hard to do. Habakkuk 2.20, I don't have this on there, but it's quick, you, you probably know it already. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Humility where we don't have the answers. Humility and letting him be God where we're struggling, where we can't control the outcome, where I don't know what to do from here, where I, I, I'm doing my best, but I, I, I'm lacking either wisdom or direction or something. May we be silent and let him be God. That's actually very challenging to do because we want to fill in those gaps because if I could just get them over this line, if I could just make them feel bad enough for their sins, (laughs) then clearly the rest of this formula is going to start making sense. And so we try to push them over the line. If we would have the confidence to let God be God, let him rule from his holy temple and let all of us be silent, maybe then his love would be what is revealed instead of our best efforts. This is not saying that this is beyond our understanding. Like, it's actually saying the exact opposite. This guy that Jesus was talking to said, this is the first command, this is the second command, and Jesus is like, yeah. <laughs> like, you can get there. You can get there. This is not beyond our understanding. The same thing I said the first week, right? Loving like Jesus is not supernatural. It's something we are capable of doing. We are made in his image. And if we think that this is so beyond us that it's impossible for us to do, we're going to be on the sidelines. We have not been sidelined from the story. We've been invited to be participants. We've been invited to be the forefront of this. In fact, we've been commanded to love and to forgive as we have been loved and as we have been forgiven. So it's the exact opposite. He's saying, you were made for this, so go and do it. But we realize that we're not quite there yet. And as we work this out with fear and trembling, let him be God. It's not excusing the hard parts. It's not ignoring the hard parts. But this is instead an invitation to trust, to come in humility, to know that the intent has always been God's love. We have a friend who was a a Y guide. You guys know what what Y guides are? It's like a a, a YMCA, kind of like a, a leader. And um, his wife is from Mexico, and she heard him say that, that uh, he was going to have his, his white guys over. 
And, uh, and, and she was very confused when, when one of the, the white guys that came over was from Colombia and he joined the group. And it's a very funny misunderstanding that, that you're going to have your white guys club, <laughs> you know, and you're expecting all the white guys to show up and, and that this Colombia man joins them and they're like, this is not what I expected. What I actually, we laughed at the story, but what I loved about it is actually the beautiful expression of the trust that they had for each other. Because when she heard white guys, she didn't, she didn't assume anything malicious. It, it was like, well, I know my husband. He married a Mexican woman. Like, he, 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 the, the understanding was, like, of course I know that there's goodness here. Of course I know that there's love here. So if you're going to have your white guys club, <laughs> I don't expect it to be malicious. I don't expect it to be fueled by hate. I don't understand it. <laughs> you know, and it's not a white guys club anyway. It's the Y guys. But... Is there actually not that note of beauty in there, of trust, of knowing somebody's heart and intention? I think sometimes we come to the gospel and it's hard. We don't get it. But we fill in that gap with a malicious, cynical understanding of saying, I don't get this, but surely I have a better understanding of this than, than what I'm, I'm picking up here. And we fill in these gaps with a human understanding of what we're trying to get about, trying to make that formula work. This is an invitation to humility. It's an invitation to say, let's not try to be the, the authors of the gospel. Let us not try to be the authors of somebody's redemption story, but let God be God. For our second point, we're going to look at, at another gospel that, that gives the same passage a bit more context. This is from Luke 10. It starts off the same way. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Slightly different question. What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? This, you can put up the, the stained glass picture. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now you see where we're going. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Our second point, Christ fills in the gaps with mercy. Christ fills in the gaps with mercy. Here's what happens when we try and fill in this formula ourselves. You can pull up the, the, the horse one. We start off pretty good. God's love is this beautiful picture. And then we think, I got to complete this picture. 
he's too slow. <laughs> I'm going to try to, to make this the best that I can. And this is what we do. <laughs> do you see, church, what we've done? We are doodling in front of the great artist. We are connecting these dots in a way that is a poor representation of the fullness of God's plan and purposes, of his beautiful love. We are not letting him fill in these gaps with mercy, and we rush the job, and we fill it in with judgment. We fill it in with human understanding. We feel, fill it in with, 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 with a, a risk that we have trying to just make sure that we can get this stuff done because time is limited. We got to do this. And so we doodle on the artist's sketch pad. I, um, I got a, a little bit stuck in a rabbit hole with the Greek for mercy because uh, 37 says the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And I looked that up. The word Elios isn't just in the, in the Bible. That's the Greek word for this is Elios. Fascinating thing. I really did get stuck on this for a while because Elios is actually a, a goddess in, in the Greek goddesses, you know, like all the, the Greek gods. There's a, a goddess called Elios, and it's the representation of mercy. And now it, it's particularly interesting for this. I'm, I'm going to try to not get too lost on this. But whenever you look at this in the biblical tense and everything, mercy is that of God towards sinners, a readiness to help those in trouble. The word in Greek and in biblical studies always accounts for the position of the person showing it and the position of the person who's receiving it. It's always from somebody who has the power to do something to somebody who is powerless. It's always about trying to get them from where they are to where they should be, to where they could be. Like this word, mercy, it's so beautifully crafted in this understanding of, of you are in need and I can get you where you need to go. Christ fills in the gaps with mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Maybe the only prayer we need. Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you ever read Proverbs? Um, sometimes it feels like one of those wooden roller coasters, you know, that, that's been settling for too long, very herky-jerky. You got like one passage that says one thing, you know, we're, we're talking about money, and then there's another one that's talking about relationship, and you're like, ooh, we changed topics. Like, didn't, didn't know that that was coming. You know, each verse is kind of this entire proverb. You could read just one proverb, and you're like, that's enough for today. I will chew on that and try to see where it goes. Um, I sometimes read other portions of the Bible that way to their detriment. Because you try to think that, oh, we've changed topics here, when you haven't changed topics. I made this mistake, call back in my own sermon. You remember when I said pearls before swine? I've made this mistake with the Sermon on the Mount for so many years, and I missed this because I thought Jesus changed topics on me. This is what we get from Matthew 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount, by the way, long. If you haven't really studied it, it's beautiful. It does change topics a few times, which is why I think we struggle trying to understand how these things are connected. This is from chapter 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Whoa, wait, what? <laughs> Have we changed topics here? No. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What is this telling us? It feels like this proverb, and I think that that's why I try to divorce that last verse from this, because what are we saying? What is sacred? God's judgment is sacred. His judgment that looked at you in your position of neediness, of brokenness, and extended mercy. God's judgment is sacred. It is a precious pearl. And we throw it before the swine. This precious gift of God's judgment, we treat as something that is just for everybody all the time. Here you go, have my pearls. This changed my life. Take it. And we cast our pearls before swine. We don't understand this precious gift that God has to bring them through the story, that, that God has to extend his hand and pull people through this so that they can get their own pearl. What we have been doing is we've been taking our precious gift and trying to give it away. It's different. We are not the author of salvation. It's not my salvation that's going to save my kids. Try as I might, I cannot be the redeemer for my children. My understanding of scripture, the things that I've learned, it is a guide. It's helpful. I think it's an important part of this, but I cannot be the savior to my children. I cannot be the savior to anybody in this church. No pastor, no preacher, no theologian can save you, but Christ in Christ alone. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Point to the Father and let him complete the story. Y'all were doodling, but he's the artist. We're doodling, but he's the artist. If we take our judgment and offer it to someone else, it doesn't fit. The ways that we have been judged are not the ways that they will be judged. It doesn't seem fair. Do you know how much of the Bible tells us that, yes, it doesn't seem fair and deal with it? To his own master, each will stand and fall, right? What's he saying? None of your business, <laughs> right? In another place, what's it to you if I let this guy live? Oh, Jesus, that's a little harsh. What's it to you, church? What's it to you if I save this person through that way? What's it to you if they struggle with sin for five and 10 or 15 or 20 years? What's it to you? Christ's judgment, when he finds someone lacking, spurs his mercy. His kindness leads us to repentance. Our judgment leads us to exclusion. Our kindness leads to passivity. I don't think that this is an answer to this whole hard question on how we love those who hurt us. I don't think that this is a complete answer on, on how we deal with judgment in, in a way that, that, that looks at, at the sins and writes them. It's a hard thing. It's a very hard thing. But I think this gives us that starting point of realizing in humility we point to Jesus. He alone can do this perfectly. He alone is the one who can show us how to do this. Could I get the, the worship team or at least someone to come up here? I'm going to intentionally have us get some maybe louder music than normal. Sorry to throw you a little bit of curveball. Often we have pretty quiet music here as we invite people up to do this. 
The reason for this is because I think it'd actually be really good for us to confess our sins. And we feel shame. I know we feel shame. There's probably things you've done that you've never spoken out loud. Just, just throwing that out there from personal experience. <laughs> right? Your deepest, your darkest, your shameful things. Things that you did once or twice and then you're like, ah, and you, you, in your head you just thought, God forgive me. And you kind of feel kind of better about it, but not fully. And it's like, if I say this word, you're already thinking of something. Whatever that might be. You're not meant to live that way. You're just with, with mercy and compassion, I'm telling you, church, you're not meant to live that way. You're carrying a burden still, and you're just putting a patchwork around it. You're trying to, to get on with the formula without actually addressing these things. I want to give you an opportunity truly to bring those things to the cross. And this is hard to legitimately speak these things out and to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Would you have mercy on me? A sinner. Son of David, have mercy on me. I have confidence, and this is what I want you to hear. I have confidence that as you confess your sins, you'll find mercy. You will find mercy. You will find forgiveness. You will find love. The other thing, and it was really in the beginning, legitimately, truly, deeply forgiving someone who hurt you. Not superficial. Not step one or two or three. There's four things that Tim Keller spelled out there that I think are just so hard for us to legitimately, honestly, truly do. If you are walking around with unforgiveness, you're not living your full life. You're just not. And it's not, again, this is not about shame. This is not like, oh, how dare you? It's like, you know, you, you don't have to live that way. I don't want that to be your story. If you've been doodling and trying to fill in these gaps yourself and trying to get yourself over that finish line, trying to hurry up that process, let's slow down. Let's let him color in your life. Make a beautiful picture where you've just scribbled something trying to, to make it feel better for the moment, right? We're not talking about putting a band-aid on things. We're talking about really getting at the heart of things. Where there's unforgiveness, where there's hurt, where there's shame. Can you trust the Lord that his mercy sufficient? I'm going to tell you, I think you can. I think you can. It's going to be costly. It could be embarrassing. It might be hard. You might have to let go of some things. But it could start here today. What a gift for the holidays to be able to walk back to that family member and to not see the years of pain, to not feel that distance, but to forgive in hope and longing, saying, here we go. I can love you with the rest of this life. We can work from this point forward.